What makes a good judge? Temperament. Intelligence, sure, curiosity, but what about empathy? Being able to relate to other people. If you're a judge and you're abusive to your staff, how can you deliver judgments on harassment cases? Or in other words, when you're a harasser, can you be a good judge? I mean, there is a real culture of silence in the legal community, one of deifying judges and disbelieving law clerks. The messaging is stay silent in the face of mistreatment. It is not, and the messaging is also, it's not worth coming forward because you won't be believed, the judge won't be disciplined and your life will be ruined. Welcome to May It Displease the Court, a show about all the ways our legal system doesn't work for us. I'm an attorney and your host, Mary Whiteside. Our judges are supposed to be arbiters of truth and enforcers of our rules. And it's a sad and honest truth that many are enforcing the laws that they refuse to have applied to themselves. Joining me now to talk about this and what can be done about it all is Elisa Schatzman. She's an attorney and the co-founder of the Legal Accountability Project. It's a nonprofit that, among other things, collects data on federal judges to measure their treatment of law clerks and to try to make sure that law clerks have a positive experience. Hi, Elisa. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm so glad that we get to talk about this. So you got into this line of work because of your own just terrible experience as a law clerk. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I went to WashU Law, graduated in 2019, and during law school, I realized that I wanted to be a homicide prosecutor in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. So I did a couple different internships at DOJ and then decided to clerk in D.C. Superior Court, which is D.C.'s local trial court during the 2019 to 2020 term intending to launch my career as an AUSA. Can you just tell us, uh, tell, tell listeners what an AUSA is? An assistant U.S. attorney. They're the federal prosecutors. Yes. Excellent. So at WashU Law, like at most law schools, the messaging around clerkships was uniformly positive. This will be a lifelong mentor-mentee relationship. The position will confer only professional benefits. I was told to apply broadly, meaning across the U.S. and across the political spectrum, and to accept the first clerkship I was offered. So I did all those things. Moved to D.C. in the summer after I graduated and started clerking in August of 2019. And unfortunately, uh, my career aspirations were shattered pretty quickly. The judge for whom I clerked began to pretty quickly harass me and discriminate against me because of my gender. He would kick me out of the courtroom and tell me that I made him uncomfortable and that he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk. He told me I was bossy and aggressive and nasty and that I had personality issues. Wow. The day I found out that I'd passed the DC, yeah. (laughs) Yep, yeah. I would have cried. Like, not in front of him, but I would have gone back to my office and cried, probably. Or my car. I did cry. I cried a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember crying in the courthouse bathroom every day and crying myself to sleep at night. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, the day I found out that I passed the DC bar exam, so big day in any of our lives. Such a relief. 
<laughs> yeah. The judge called me into his chambers, got in my face and told me, you're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. <gasps> this oh was all gosh. just so devastating. I mean, thinking of what I expected a judge to be like and then what actually happened. I mean, that that discrepancy was just devastating. Yeah, this complete disillusionment about what the bench is like and what you're, you know, you, you come up from law school in this kind of high, like, oh, the legal profession is great and judges are these, yeah. you know, these great arbiters of truth. And then, bam, yes, like the all of that wiped away. The legal community really deifies judges to a disturbing degree. But so I confided in some attorney mentors. I mean, I wanted to be reassigned to a different judge, but my workplace didn't even have an employee dispute resolution or EDR plan in place that might have enabled that to happen. The folks I confided in advised me to stick it out. And I knew that I needed a year of work experience to be eligible to apply to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And that is the requirement for most government jobs is a year's work experience. So try to stick it out. Uh, we moved back. Well, we transitioned to remote work during the pandemic. So I moved home to Philly to stay with my parents and work remotely. And the judge ignored me for six weeks before he called me up and told me he was ending my clerkship early because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him. But he didn't want to get into it. And then he hung up on me. So he didn't like give you an opportunity. It was just, it sounds like these were just... He would just come at you, kind of yell at you, demean you, and then you don't really have any opportunity to, to do anything about that. No, there are, there's no opportunity to respond. Um, and I mean, I think I realized that he could just fire me if I had responded. True. So reached out to DC Courts HR, and they told me there was nothing they could do because HR doesn't regulate judges, that judges and law clerks have a unique relationship. And then they asked me whether I knew that I was an at-will employee. Now explain what at-will, uh, let's, let's explain what at-will employee means uh, for listeners. So at-will means that you can be fired for any reason or no reason at all, as long as that reason is not discriminatory. So discriminatory, I mean, would be if you're being fired because you are uh, a woman, that would be discriminatory because, you know, sex and gender can be a protected class. But there's kind of a problem with that in this situation, isn't there? There are a couple problems with that. Um, I mean, judges are not subject to Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which is a big problem. Um, but in my case, the then judge had agreed to just indicate that my clerkship had ended early due to the pandemic. And I was working remotely. I was not engaging in person with HR. I didn't have attorneys at that point. And I thought it was better not to challenge this, which ended up being a mistake. But 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 one you would make, but one that seems reasonable. I think I probably would have made the same decision in your shoes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So then I reached out to my law school, to WashU Law, seeking I don't know advice, assistance, support. Found out this judge had a history of harassing his clerks, and that several law school officials, including the clerkship's director who outrageously still works there to this day, <laughs> knew about this at the time I'd accepted the clerkship and chose not to share this information with me, I guess because they wanted another WashU Law student to clerk. Yeah, I mean, that's what it seems like. Because they, they tout those numbers and, rec 
in, you know, promotional materials for law schools. They tout how many clerks that they place. Yes, they do. Yes. So after that, took me about a year to get back on my feet. I drafted a judicial complaint that I intended to file with the local Judicial Conduct Commission. I connected with another judge who'd helped me with that, but I wanted to wait to file until I had a new job because I was already worried the judge would retaliate against me. Mm-hmm. So found a new job in, my, in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, which was my dream job, and I moved back to D.C. in the summer of 2021, hoping to put all this behind me, intending to launch my career as a prosecutor. Right. Just move on. And yeah. Yep. Still intended to file the complaint, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, that, I mean, it was in the back of my mind, but I wanted to just move on. Right. Um, and I think I wrongly assumed that when the clerkship ended, the mistreatment would end. Yeah. So I was two weeks into training at the USAO. I had already started working there when I received some really devastating news that altered the course of my life. Mm -hmm. I was told that the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance, and that my job offer was being revoked. Wow. So that was your that was your whole goal. I mean, your whole goal of taking the clerkship was to get this job. Yes, this job to be a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor. And now all of that is gone. Yes. Yep. Well, and also because if the if the judge is going, they're going to go back to the judge. If you say you wanted to apply at a different uh, federal prosecutor's office, yep. you're still going to have to go through the same exact process. They're always going to go back to this judge. That's correct. So yes, yes, that's it. That that's a lot of power. It is. Yes, I did not realize the enormous power that this judge would have over my life. Um, I was offered. I remember crying on the phone with some folks from. HR at the USAO and some folks from leadership. And I was not able initially to get a copy of the negative reference through the USAO or through a FOIA request. Um, The USAO actually reached out to me a couple days later and offered me the opportunity to interview for another job with the office. But then they revoked Mm -hmm. that too, based on the judge's same negative reference, which I still had not yet seen. And at this point, I was two years into my legal career. And this judge just seemed right. to have limitless power to ruin my career and destroy my reputation. Wow. That is, that's really, that's really disturbing. Yes. That's, that's just terrible. Yes. And I, I'm just curious during this process, because I, I didn't personally apply for any clerkships. Is there an interview process? Were you able to meet him? Not that, not, 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 not trying to blame you in any way or like, how could you have known? But I'm just curious as to whether there was an interview process so you could have gotten a look at this guy and uh, I'm assuming it's a man, yes. this judge, um, yes. beforehand. Yes. So this was before the pandemic. So there was an in-person interview process. Um, at the time, I was spending the semester living and working in D.C., interning in the National Security Division at DOJ. So, yes, I did multiple interviews. Um, look, I mean, I reached out Clerkship directors now, and we'll get to what I'm doing now, but a lot of clerkship directors tell students to do their research, meaning reach out to current and former clerks. Uh, WashU Law did not have a robust alumni network of folks to connect me with, so I reached out to a lot of AUSAs and PDs who'd appeared before this judge, and Mm -hmm. I 
don't think I got the full story from them. I met with this judge and he seemed fine. I met with his outgoing clerks and what should have been a red flag is when they said that the judge likes to hire folks who wouldn't otherwise be hired, like women and minorities. And that that seemed weird to me. But look, I mean, WashU had told me to accept the first clerkship I was offered. I would have thought that was great. If somebody said that, I would I would think that that was a safe place. Really, I would not have seen that as, as a red flag at all. So, okay. you know, the fact that you have to kind of read the tea leaves to figure out, you know, what's a what's a good place to be is not a great system. No, it's not. It's not a good system at all. Um, so there was an interview process, but yes, I mean, I was extra, I mean, law schools instruct students applying for clerkships to accept the first clerkship they're offered Mm -hmm. to accept it on the spot. And so I did those things. So yes, I did meet him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the same advice. I didn't go through the process, but I knew people that were. And so the advice when I was, you know, graduating in, in 2002 is exactly the same 20, you know, almost 20 years later. So the system has not evolved at all. In, in almost 20 years. It really has not, or very little. Yeah, I mean, at that point, I my job offer was revoked. I filed a judicial complaint. I hired attorneys. I participated in this investigation into the now former judge. And we were partway through the investigation when I found out he was on administrative leave pending an investigation into other misconduct at the time he filed the negative reference about me. So had you filed, just t- just timeline things, had you filed your complaint against him by this point? Was he aware of that? At the time he gave the negative reference? Yeah. I had not filed the complaint at the time he filed the negative reference. So you hadn't even filed the complaint. You just thought about filing the complaint, hadn't filed the complaint. He, other people filed complaints. He's under... He's yes. under investigation for that on on leave because of that, and then probably angry. Yes, probably angry about being on. Yeah, <laughs> probably angry. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, if he didn't know, it's it's yeah. interesting. I mean, you know, we're speculating here, but like, if he didn't know who it was that had filed the complaint, he could have easily assumed that it was you, given his conduct. Obviously, there wasn't. It wasn't just you that he had behaved this way towards. Wow, there's so much to chew on here about this. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, the USAO was not alerted of the circumstances surrounding this reference until January 2022. So like more than six months later. And they just immediately react to this because this is a judge that they're in front of all the time. They're putting their cases before them. He makes a negative reference, you know, so so for their perspective, right, they don't want to hire you because he doesn't like you and you're going to have to you would have to go in front of him. And so they're going to think, well, that's not that's not going to help our side you know it right but, but they don't it, they don't understand the full picture of correct. of his yeah. behavior when they make that decision Ugh. that's correct so it's yeah and in this type of calculus and I mean this my story is not rare it's just rarely shared but this is right. the calculus it's not just well we'll hire someone who appears before this judge but it's angering this judge period we're going to go against the judge's recommendation what implications does that have for all our cases? And mm-hmm. what implications does that have for the larger judiciary if we, as a U.S. attorney's office, are doing this? Because, I mean, right. judges notoriously stand by their colleagues. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they do. So, 
Yeah. So I, during the summer, was going through this judicial misconduct investigation. I had hired attorneys who were representing me both before the commission and in private settlement negotiations with the then judge. I mean, we were seeking for him to revoke the negative reference. We were at least Mm -hmm. seeking to get a copy of it, which we did not get through a FOIA request, which is outrageous because it's about me and led to the revocation of my job offer and statements that I'd be denied a security clearance. What privacy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I did eventually get the negative reference through private settlement negotiations. Mm -hmm. And um, during this time, I found out that law clerks are exempt from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. That means that folks like me with experiences like mine cannot sue our harassers and seek damages for harms done to our lives. I mean, that's crazy because that judges are, they are tasked with enforcing Title VII and, yes. and adjudicating cases of harassment, yet they are refusing to be subject to the same law themselves. So they can treat their employees however they want, but they're also supposed to sit in judgment of other employers who, uh, you know, who allegedly and who, you know, are adjudicated having discriminatory treatment. I mean, that, that seems like a really unfair sit- situation for people that are bringing harassment claims. Yes. Judges right now are basically above the laws they enforce. They perceive themselves to be above the law. Some do. Certainly, I think that my misbehaving former supervisor did. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what is a Title VII litigant, a woman, to think when she appears before a judge, knowing that this judge is not subject to those same laws? Well, but that's so obviously that's a big problem with judges who are actually harassers. But it's just a big problem that that any woman or any any protected class is under the same situation with every single judge, because all of the judges are not are not subject to that. So it's a real problem with the judiciary and, you know, that we as lawyers really allow. Absolutely. Some of this power is power that we as attorneys confer upon judges. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that starts back in law school. when We are taught to deify judges. Um, it, it is just in the water at these law schools. I want to talk about this. Uh, yes, absolutely. And we're going to get more into that. But I, I want to talk about this, focus on this one pretty notorious judge, um, from the Ninth Circuit, Alex Kaczynski. Uh, he is now, uh, he's a retired. Judge. He's a former yes. judge. He abruptly <laughs> retired while yes. he was under investigation from uh, at least, I think, 15 law clerks, former students, and also a fellow judge who had accused him of showing them explicit images, pornography in his chambers, and also inappropriately touching them. Not everybody doesn't have the same allegations, but those are the range of allegations that he faced. He never addressed them. He abruptly retired, so the investigation stopped. And he has, you know, kind of dropped out of sight from the legal community for a while, but then he would pop back up. He's in, back. He's coming back. Yeah, he's back. Well, he's, su- he's super back now because he's representing yeah. Trump. So, you know, and he was when you talk about that mentor-mentee relationship, I mean, that existed for some of these clerks. Like, Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh, he clerked for him in the 90s, claims that he never saw any inappropriate sexual behavior. Kaczynski's son then clerked for Kavanaugh. So we're talking, these guys are really tight, really, really tight. So that kind of, you know, relationship uh, existed for them. And 
you know, his situation is kind of emblematic of how judges who have faced these pretty serious allegations can kind of get away with it without anybody really knowing what happened because they retire and then, okay, I guess that's it. Absolutely. Yeah. A couple things about Kaczynski. The first is that, yes, when judges step down amid a misconduct investigation currently, the judiciary loses jurisdiction. That investigation ceases. There is pending legislation called the Judiciary Accountability Act that would address that. But Kaczynski, because he retired rather than resigned, he continues, I believe, to collect a lifetime pension, collecting taxpayer dollars after committing misconduct. And the other thing that Kaczynski really highlights that's a problem, he was a notorious feeder judge to Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court, meaning that even though it was kind of in the water that there were these problematic behaviors in chambers, folks continued to seek clerkships with him, believing they could handle it. But nobody should have to. And there is no guarantee that mistreatment, as my story illustrates, ceases when the clerkship ceases. So, yes, I mean, Kaczynski is one example of a bad actor, but there are many like him. Right. He's just an example of how of how we as a profession treat this and what we allow. He never had to address it. So he can just be like, well, you know, I didn't I didn't I I fully would have supported uh, an investigation had it continued. But, you know, his actions, of course, ended that. So that's that's not even really legitimate, legitimate comment that he's making. And definitely a lot of like folks in the legal community, definitely some law school officials um, like to bring up Kaczynski as like the example of when those allegations became public in 2017, we decided to make some changes. But it's really important to underscore that Kaczynski was engaging in these outrageously problematic behaviors for decades. And it was a situation where law school officials knew, but the students, the clerkship applicants didn't know. The info was not getting to the folks who needed it. And I think when we talk about some of these judges engaging in problematic behavior, think about the number of current and former clerks whose careers are just destroyed, folks who are tossed aside or suffering in silence. And it's just really so sad that people think that's the time when we decided to make changes. The time should have been decades ago. I mean, and the idea that law schools continue to send students to Kaczynski to clerk is just despicable. So that's a real, you know, for non-lawyers out there who are sitting there wondering, well, how on earth do these judges with such a lengthy history of abuse get appointed in the first place? How are they allowed to stay on the bench? I mean, it really does come to the fact that, you know, clerks and, and staff don't have the protections to come forward, you know, so they're not under this the, the protection of, of Title VII. And also, Again, the complicity of law schools who are more seemingly more concerned about their reputation of where they place clerks than they are with protecting their their students and their former students. And that's, you know, it's that complicity, that silence that allows this type of abuse to go on for decades. Absolutely. I mean, there is a real culture of silence in the legal community, one of deifying judges yes. and disbelieving yep. law clerks. The messaging is stay silent in the face of mistreatment. It is not. And the messaging is also it's not worth coming forward because you won't be believed. The judge won't be disciplined and your life will be ruined. And when I think of my own experience, deciding to file a complaint, deciding to speak publicly, to submit written testimony before the House Judiciary Subcommittee, 
the messaging I got from a lot of female attorneys was the right professional decision would have been not to report that speaking publicly would tarnish my reputation. This is from other women. So it's just this culture of silence and fear that Mm -hmm. we are perpetuating. And yes, law schools are definitely, definitely complicit. And I know some deans and clerkship directors don't love it when I say that. And I'm trying to project positive messaging in general, but um, there are definitely some still engaging in this really problematic behavior and they kind of know who they are. Well, you know, there's there's positivity is great. And I think positivity can come from uh, recognizing the problem and and finally instituting changes, you know, because we have because you and and, and other brave, uh, brave victims have shown sunlight on this on the situation. And, and it's the lack of support that previous people felt, which is why this has continued. So, you know, what you're doing is extremely important because you are trying to bring that support to people so that, you know, there's a, a larger voice and people can feel comfortable saying something. Because this whisper network is, I mean, you know, it, the fact that even it exists speaks to the fact that it's unsafe to speak truth to to power to speak truth to these judges. That's not a safe place. Absolutely. And to do the that. whisper networks are inefficient at best and ineffective at worst. And what we mean when we talk mm-hmm. about the whisper network is, again, some law school officials telling students that the way to get information about good judges and bad judges is to talk to current and former clerks. Clerks who face mistreatment are historically and notoriously unwilling to report back to their law schools and also to share that information in phone conversations with law students who reach out to them. The information is simply not getting from the folks who have it to the folks who need it. And and so that's that seems like that's a large part of what your nonprofit is doing, which is collecting data on judges. Um, So what are the goals with collecting this data? Yeah, so basically the nonprofit, the Legal Accountability Project, um, is a nonprofit I launched this summer with a WashU Law classmate to address various gaps that I personally experienced in the clerkship application process and larger, the larger lack of accountability within the state and federal judiciaries. So I really think of the nonprofit as ensuring positive clerkship experiences whenever possible, Mm -hmm. and extending support and resources to the folks who do not have a positive experience. And it's definitely the resource I wish existed as a WashU law student applying for a clerkship, a law clerk facing harassment and unsure where to go for help, and then a former clerk engaging in the formal judicial complaint process. And we are working on two major initiatives in collaboration with law schools beginning this year. The first one is a centralized clerkships reporting database, which will democratize information about judges. So students have as much info about as many judges as possible before they make what is clearly a really important decision about their careers. Right. The other uh, before I was just like apply to everybody and take the first thing, you know, so it takes you as as a potential employee completely out of the mix. You're just like, whatever you give me is fine. Yes. You know, and. And this, that seems really important to change. Yes. And as I talk to students, I mean, I I hear a bunch of things, but students tell me the clerkship application process is overwhelming, confusing, and a black box. And so I spend a lot of time talking with students now and I say, so you want to clerk? Great. 
How will you avoid judges who harass their clerks? Mm -hmm. Some people might say, I'd ask someone. Well, again, who are you going to ask? Clerkship directors telling students to do their research. What research are you going to do when so little info is available about judges on an equitable basis? Mm -hmm. A handful of law schools do a post-clerkship survey of their alumni and keep that in a searchable database. There are very few negative reports in these databases. Why? Because the tone of the questioning when they send these surveys to their alums is, you had a positive experience, right? If you had a negative experience, don't tell us. Yeah. Which means that most law clerk alumni who face harassment are not reporting back to their law schools. Like, think about your law school deans and clerkship director. Probably nice people. I have, I don't know. But are they the first folks you're going to go to when you face harassment by a life-tenured federal judge? No. No. Probably no. <laughs> so, I mean, where, where, what, where's a safe place when you're facing harassment from a lifetime tenured federal judge? That's It's probably that's not your dean. Scary right. thing. It's probably not your clerkship director. No, yeah. Definitely not right. your dean. But that enables yeah. some law school officials to kind of disclaim responsibility and say things to me like, yeah. We're blessed to only work with good judges. All our alums have a positive experience. Okay. All right. <laughs> that okay, that law school, I think, knows who we're talking about. Um, whatever. So, <laughs> but it, it really enables a large group of folks to kind of disclaim responsibility. Look, I've been out there speaking publicly about my personal experience and the nonprofit for a while now. And we've made a lot of progress at even some of our most challenging administrations. And everybody, nearly everybody is very willing to engage with me at this point. But yeah, there was a Mm -hmm. sizable group of people disclaiming responsibility over the summer in the early days. I think they've had a chance to think through these issues. And now they kind of realize, because I say it publicly every day, your alums who face harassment are not reporting back to you, but it doesn't mean everybody has a positive experience. Right. So basically what we're doing with the database is we're going to have law clerk alumni creating an account with us and writing a report about their judge and their clerkship, Mm -hmm. good, bad, medium. We want to hear everything. We ask a variety of questions, getting info about bosses and clerkships that you might want to know before you apply. Certainly mistreatment is something we seek to capture, but it's also how does the judge provide feedback? Do I get writing and courtroom experience? Can I take vacation? All kinds of stuff you might want to know. Which is also very important. It's like, well, you're gonna you're never gonna see the light of day. You are doing all of the work all of the time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there's lots of stuff you might want to know. Stuff that if you were seeking other private or public sector employment, you would get to know. But because these are clerkships and there's such like a smoke screen of like secret secretiveness around them, Mm -hmm. you don't get to know. Um, So we're basically doing a better version of what a handful of schools already do internally. Mm -hmm. By taking it out of law school's hands, we firmly believe we will get a much higher response rate um, and more candid responses because folks reach out to me every day and confide in me and say, I would not report to my law school, but I will report to you. I feel more anonymous because more folks are reporting into the database. I feel more anonymous because I'm not reporting directly to my clerkship director and dean of career services. Yeah. So it takes all of that out of it. Like all of the ego of the schools about who they place is removed. And it just goes to, you know, because clerks can, people, students can be placed in clerkships all over the country. So, you know, it it really makes sense, honestly, for it to be outside of their 
realm, you know, because there's yes. so many judges. You're not you're not going to be able right. to each individual law school is just not going to be able to have the information on everybody. Yes. That is what I say to law schools. Yeah. No law school has a monopoly on info about judges, but every school has a ceiling on the number of judges they can keep track of. And it totally depends on who their alums have clerked for in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if, they, I mean, if you're if no one has clerked for that judge in your law school, then you're just in the dark. You're not you're having yes. you're not going to know who yes. who else has so, clerked. Yeah. Right. And so most law schools are surprisingly willing to engage in or interested in potentially engaging in this type of information sharing mm-hmm. because they all understand that there are gaps. Whether you send mostly state court clerks or mostly federal, mm-hmm. whether you send five clerks per year and you're looking to bolster your program, or you send 100 clerks per year and you're looking to maintain it, everybody understands that more info would help more people. And students get this immediately. Like wherever we go with the Legal Accountability Project, they understand immediately why this would be valuable to them. Oh, absolutely. And so. Yeah, I mean, the database is a subscription model, so we're asking law schools to pay us $5 per student per year based on their total JD enrollment to participate, and then their alums report into it, and in exchange, their students can read all the reports. Mm -hmm. But so importantly, obviously, not just their alums' reports, the reports from all the alums at all the schools participating in the database. This is, I believe, the best way to protect law clerks against harassment and to ensure positive clerkship experiences. And this is the resource I wish existed when I was applying for a clerkship. So that is the database. (laughs) Well, I was just thinking, you know, you're going to get a lot of demographic information uh, that, you know, you would be able to compile, you know, on, on judges as far as like who they're hiring, what type of people are they hiring? Are they only hiring white males? Are they only hiring, you know, you know, what is that? So I think that would be really interesting to, to get a better handle on. Do you know if there's any real, you know, information on demographics of clerks at this point? So I should clarify that for the database, we are not really seeking demographic information unless folks choose to provide it. For the workplace assessment, which is our other initiative, we are, and that's a data collection and analysis initiative. That's separate. Okay. So they're two separate things. Got it. Yeah, the database is really focused on judges and knowing who are the judges to apply to, who are the ones maybe you shouldn't apply to. Okay. In terms of demographic information right now, there is a real dearth of data in this and every other space related to the judiciary. The Mm -hmm. um, NALP, which is the National Association for Law Placement, conducts surveys of folks clerking immediately post-grad. And I think the most recent data suggested that like 79% of federal clerks are white and male. That's outrageous. That's totally outrageous. Yes. I mean, it's been, it's been 50, 50, at least, if not, I think slightly more female law students than male law students. So the fact that nearly 80% of the clerkships are white males, that's, that's a way more than they should be, you know, that they should be achieving based on merit. Yes. And it's like a larger pipeline issue because today's law clerks are tomorrow's prosecutors, public defenders, law professors, and judges. And when we think about who rises to and through the legal profession and to and through the judiciary, well, it's white males. Nothing wrong with them. When we think of judicial decision-making and whether it is truly fair and unbiased, and we think of some of the decisions we don't like so much, well, they're written in research by white men and they're white male clerks. And so, right. yeah, it's, it creates an enormous pipeline issue. 
But I do want to caution that we should not, we can't decouple conversations about increasing diversity on the bench and in chambers from conversations about judicial accountability, because Mm -hmm. there are definitely law clerks who express to me kind of tokenism concerns. Like if I'm the only woman, only non-white person in chambers, I'm going to face the brunt of mistreatment and I'm not going to subject Mm -hmm. myself to that just to increase diversity numbers. Um, It really, I believe it's the non-white folks, the women, the LGBTQ folks who are facing the brunt of mistreatment during these clerkships. Sure. And they decide not to apply to clerk or they apply less broadly and ambitiously than they otherwise might because they don't have the info they need before applying. They would clerk if they had the info. And that's why a lot of them reach out to me privately and ask for this mm-hmm. data. Um, I think that is an argument that works at some law schools. This is going to bolster your diverse clerkship numbers. And yeah. Well, I certainly don't think it should be a situation where the the harasser uh, judges get to just stay where they are and then they just get to then then the white males just get go there because they're going to you know they're they're not going to be the ones to draw the the harassment i think that's that's the that's the worst possible solution to this to this situation um it should hopefully the information coming out will get judges who are harassers off the bench that would be what i would want because i i really find it hard to believe that you can be a good judge and make good judicial decisions if you are someone that's abusive to your staff. I think that that's a character issue and it's going to infect everything that you do. And I think that's really what we should be thinking about. We shouldn't be just giving these people passes like they do with Kaczynski, like, well, he's this brilliant legal mind. It's like, no, he may have some, he may have some good ideas, but there's this fundamental defect of character that is going to infect his decisions, regardless of whether he's smart in other areas. Yes, I totally agree. If you know that a judge is mistreating their clerks or other employees, it should definitely make you believe that you as a litigant, you as a defendant, will not get a fair shake. It speaks to, yeah, a larger character defect, I think. And I think it's a problem that chief executives are really just appointing judges based on their judicial philosophy. We should be thinking about judges as employers running a small workplace. And like when I think of the former judge for whom I clerked, there were people who said to me pretty recently, I support you, but it's too bad we are losing a progressive sentencer, somebody who gets it on crime. Like that is despicable. Like that is is totally unnecessary. There are lots of progressives in D.C. Mm -hmm. we can appoint as judges who are not harassing people. So it's really just dangerous when we are so wedded to our judicial philosophy above everything else. Exactly. There's a lot of people that w- would be great on the bench. So it's not that there's a lack of talent underneath that we can't possibly, you know, remove a judge that there's nobody that could fill that could fill that role. I think that that's ridiculous. And, you know, we make so many excuses. We it's, you know, we're a self-policing profession and yet we really refuse to use the tools that we have in order to police our own. And that's a that's a problem that, you know, I see over and over again, you know, when looking at the problems with the legal system, it's that we just kind of sweep things under the rug, which is so frustrating because we all, you know, it's the job of the judge is to hold people accountable. And they're so harsh to some groups of people and yet themselves 
It's like chance after chance after chance after chance or no accountability at all. Right. I mean, the thing about self-policing is, well, first of all, within the legal profession, yes, we are self-policing, but we are also subject to laws like Title VII for employers. Like these judges are also are exempt from those laws. Self-policing is the only way they regulate. And I really think that tasking folks with internal self-policing leads to a lack of policing. Sure. And that internal self-discipline leads to a lack of discipline. So. What can Congress do? Because they're the ones who who are over the federal judiciary, you know, they can, well, not over, but, you know, they, they do have oversight uh, capabilities into the federal judiciary. Um, how can Congress come in and do something? Yeah. So we just had an election. Um, now that we are past that, the Senate Judiciary Committee should hold a hearing on the Judiciary Accountability Act. The JAA is H.R. 4827 and S2553. This is critically important legislation that would, among other things, extend Title VII to judiciary employees, including law clerks and federal public defenders. Yes. Also exempt from Title VII. Also outrageous. Outrageous. Um, so, but it would do other things besides extending Title VII. It would specify that judges who retire, resign, or die amid a misconduct investigation, those won't cease. Yeah. It would also standardize employee dispute resolution or EDR plans in all the federal courthouses. Federal judiciary claims EDR is sufficient. Nothing additional is necessary. That is nonsense. And look, EDR offers no monetary remedies. EDR is run by other judges in the courthouse where the law clerk and judge work. Not great. No. Um, But it would standardize those. It would also impose some really important data collection uh, requirements on the judiciary, requiring them to conduct annual workplace assessments and publicly report the results. This is critical. Mm -hmm. Federal judiciary has been notoriously unwilling to do this. After five years of being poked at, they finally agreed to do one, but they have specifically not committed to reporting the results publicly. Huge red flag. Yeah. Why? Like, like why? Why? (laughs) Right. Obviously, they're not going to do it themselves. So Congress really needs to do this. So we can push our own representatives, our own senators, uh, get on them to to support this to support this act. I think I agree with you. I think it's absolutely crucial, and it's pretty clear that uh, you know that the federal judiciary and and the Supreme Court in particular has no ethics, re- no ethical requirements. That that needs to change, and that they're not going to do it themselves. So, you know, that's correct. They're they're not going to do it themselves. Um, judiciary leadership opposes the J for some pretty nonsense reasons. I think they talk a lot about judicial independence, which is weird because we're not talking about suing judges for their rulings. We are saying treat judges as employers running a small workplace, other employers, you harass your employees, they can sue you. So that's all we're saying. Yeah. Um, law clerks are not seeking and federal public defenders not seeking any special protections. They are seeking the protections that apply to other folks, other private employees Mm -hmm. and people who work in Congress, people who work in the executive branch. If you graduate from law school and you say, I want to work for the Senate Judiciary Committee, or I want to work at the White House, or I want to work at a law firm, you're protected under Title VII. Right. It is only if you decide to go work in the judiciary for your first job, this job that your law school is pushing you to go to, you can be harassed. Yeah, yeah. You can be harassed and mistreated and you have no legal recourse. And there's also just a real lack of basic workplace protections 
within these courthouses. Yeah. Um, judges are basically subject to a code of conduct, which really is not enforced. And judges are just not having the difficult conversations with their judiciary colleagues when they see them engaging in problematic behaviors. There's really just a lack of self-policing, either inability or unwillingness. And it's really time to take these issues away from the judiciary. And yeah, they've had plenty of time oversight. to do it. They haven't done it. So it's time for Congress to act. I totally agree. So what is next for you and, and for this project? I mean, I am very optimistic about the future of the Legal Accountability Project. We have just done a fall semester of programming. Um, as of this recording, we visited, I think, 25 law schools, and our final law school is going to be on Thursday. Um, we're doing more programming in the spring, and we'll be announcing our initial law school partners Wonderful. this winter, and folks will start reporting into the database this year. It'll go live for students in the spring to read the reports. But I'm just enormously optimistic about the future of the legal profession. Everywhere we go, we see enormous student support for these initiatives. The next generation of young attorneys is really empowered to demand safer workplaces. And I think just my message to everybody is mm -hmm. that positive change is coming to law schools and the legal profession and even the judiciary. And as I'm visiting what I thought would be some of our toughest law school administrations and seeing them so willing to engage with me, it just makes me really optimistic about where we're going to be six months from now, let alone six years from now, in terms of data transparency and safe workplaces for all young attorneys, particularly judiciary employees. That's great to hear. I'm, I'm, I'm really encouraged by that. It also rings true. I think that a lot of the issues are not so pre harassment issues are not so present in younger attorneys. They don't see things the same way. They don't treat people, uh, you know, as abusively. Not to say that those people don't exist, but it isn't the culture just isn't quite the same. So I really encourage other, you know, to law schools to to jump on this. This is absolutely where we need to be pushing. And and I and I'm so really proud of you for taking this. What is it? Terrible. Ex a terrible experience that you never should have had to go through ever. And it, it, it took away your, your career goals, which you never should have had happen to you. You should, you know, been able to do whatever you wanted to do with your degree. But the profession, I think, is going to benefit from your resilience to turn an abusive situation and, and confront it. You know, obviously, I, I think that the, the judge really saw a fire in you that he was afraid of, as he should have been. You know, you are you're a force <laughs> and and we need more of that courage and that bravery. So I just want to acknowledge the fact that you've persevered through that. And that's really great. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I like to underscore that my experience is not rare, right? but it's rarely shared publicly. And while probably most law clerks do not have an experience like mine, many have a negative experience. Many experience, at the very least, a really overly and unnecessarily hierarchical work environment. And I would really encourage everybody who hears this story to really understand a lot of law clerks are going through negative clerkship experiences, and we should be supporting them mm -hmm. and empowering them to share and helping them get out of these negative work environments. Nobody should have to go through this. And no. my goal is that we'll, we're making some changes that ensure that many fewer people will have to. 
Great. Well, this has been really great. Thank you so much, Eliza Schatzman, an attorney and the co-founder of the Legal Accountability Project, for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. This episode is written and produced by me, Mary Whiteside, mixing and mastering by Joe Thompson, social media by Jen Nicholson. You can find the podcast on Twitter at CourtPod as long as Twitter is still functioning. Or you can drop an email at mayatdispleasethecourt at gmail.com. We would also love you to rate and review the show as it helps others find the program. Our theme music is Poor Man's Pain by Danielle Ponder. She's a former public defender. She is killing it in her music career. The song is about Willie Simmons, a black man sentenced to life in prison in 1992 for stealing $9. You can check out the show notes and learn more. Pain to cry, pain more.